Stacy called me a little while ago. He's under the weather, and uh, hoping he was hoping to make it this morning, but I think he's running some fever, and so we'll remember to pray for him, and you can remember to pray for me. Tell Mary this is the equivalent of sight reading and music, but uh, I think we'll, Lord willing, we'll get through it. I want to. T- I was thinking this morning, right after Stacy called me. Uh, uh, what I want to say about creation and uh, the theological foundation, and it occurred to me that there were, uh, what came to mind were five chapters of the Bible, both happened, all five of which happened to be uh, first chapters, and the first one is Genesis chapter 1, and the opening verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's quite an assertion. And as we've uh, pointed out many times recently in sermon series on who's to say, uh, we have many of these assertions in the Bible that if they're true, everything has changed. If God did indeed create the world, speak the world into existence out of nothing, in the beginning, at the start of everything, the origin of everything, God created. If that's true, then every other fact Every other issue, every other thing in the world is impacted by that truth. And if he didn't, then every fact and every other thing in the world is impacted by that. Everything flows from where we begin. And so is this true or is it not true? And that's why the book of Genesis has come under such assault for so long. Because if that that one verse can be undermined, then Christianity is not true. Christ died in vain. Uh, We are above all men, as Paul said, to be most pitied. And believe me, there are plenty of people in the world that pity us because we believe the first verse of the book of Genesis. Now, it doesn't stop here. It's not obscure. In fact, we can repeat this many, many times throughout the Old and the New Testaments. We can find any number of places that make equally powerful and seminal assertions. I want to look at just a few of them. Um, The others I'm going to look at are all in the New Testament for today. Uh, You're familiar, of course, with uh, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Another in the beginning passage. In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. You might think of this as an expansion on Genesis 1. We're we're getting a little bit more information about in the beginning God created. Which God? The triune God. We already know from Genesis 1 that the Spirit was hovering over uh, the earth and was engaged in the creation. Now we know that the Son also was present with the Father and the Spirit. He was in the beginning. Nothing was made without Him. Now is this true or is this false? And if it's true, what are the implications? John goes on in, in his Gospel to talk about how Jesus was the light of the world. He came to enlighten every man, to shed light on us, to shed light on the world that He made, to inform us of this 
seminal, fundamental, beginning truth. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he goes on. Now, what we know here again is that Jesus is clearly present, the Savior. In fact, we're getting a little bit more information that it's not just a God and not just a triune God, but in fact our Savior. So the, his being the Savior, his being the God-man is tied up also with this whole issue of who created everything and who got this started and what is his plan and how is he executing that plan. He sustains all things currently by the word of his power. The same word that spoke the world into existence sustains the world uh, as, as, uh, as, he go, as things go along. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. We learn even more about what happened in Genesis 1. This, they were not only created by him, but they were created for him. He was the object Is that true? We're Christians. We are, we are committed. We are believers. We believe this is true, and because we believe this is true, everything else changes. Our relationships with all the other people in our lives changes. With our husbands and our wives and our children and our parents and our neighbors. Everything is changed if this is true, and if it's not true, everything is changed. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. Now, the uh, final passage uh, from chapter 1 of the Bible that I want to look at, and we'll spend a little more time this morning on this one, is chapter 1 of Romans. So Genesis 1, in the beginning God created. Uh, in, In John 1... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in Hebrews, we're told that God has spoken through His Son, uh, who created all things by the Word of His power and sustains all things by the Word of His power. And in Colossians, all things were created by Him and for Him. And Colossians goes on to argue from that, therefore He has the preeminence over all things. He's not a footnote. He's not just the private Jesus, he is the King of glory, the creator of all things. Everything here, everything here, not just those that go to church, not just the religious things, 
everything was created for him. And so if it's not being used for him, if it's not being used for his glory, then it is not being used as it was intended. And so we, as his creatures created in his image, are certainly here for what chief end? To glorify him. And when we don't glorify him, we're, mis- we're not fulfilling our purpose. Romans 1. Again, these, these are seminal passages, and when we understand these, these are not lightweight. There's a lot here. In fact, we can spend a great deal of time in any one of these passages I've mentioned. But I want to kind of pack them together and show you the theme. Again, we could go throughout the Psalms. We could go through many, many other places in the Bible that emphasize this and expand upon this and, and build upon our uh, ability to understand just what is packed into, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Romans chapter 1, Romans, uh, you know, tremendous book, full of, the, of theology, particularly in the early, the first half of the book, uh, laying that foundation in Romans uh, chapter 1 is especially good here. I like to think of Romans 1, in, in, in Genesis 1 we have in the beginning God created a very open, clear declaration, but now in Romans 1 we get to look behind the curtain. We get to see some things that we wouldn't necessarily know on the surface unless God tells us. In fact, that's true of most things actually. We know very little. But God has told us some things, and in this case, some very important things. And we're going to see that the world is divided, uh, and other places in the Bible have told us this, into two kinds of people. Essentially, those who believe and those who don't. Those who have bowed the knee uh, before God and those who are in rebellion against God. Those are the two classes of humanity. And the gospel here is to call those out of darkness into light and to rescue those who are in rebellion, to turn them around, to arrest them, if you will, in their rebellion. But this is not neutral. And this is a real key point I want to make this morning about this discussion about creation that we've been having for several weeks and hope to have for several more. In chapter 1 of Romans, verse, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the truth is out here, and he's about to say more about that and how evident that truth is. And he says God has there's a judgment of God that's hanging over those who take the truth that he has put out there and suppress it, deny it, twist it. Try to change it. God is not pleased with that. And we might be tempted, as, as some people often are, or what, about, you know, what about somebody who's just sincere? They sincerely don't know if there's a God. They sincerely don't know if this is true. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. How do we know that? For God has shown it to them. God has shown every person this truth. 
in them. How does that work? Well, they're creating God's image. You can go in a dark room and turn out all the lights and turn up the music and everything else, but you're still there. You are the evidence. You are the very image of God that cannot be escaped. No matter what you say, no matter where you go, the image here of suppressing the truth, there are several good images of this, but one I like is a giant spring that is being held down. It takes constant effort. What happens if you let up is it it pops up. The illustration uh, Dr. Bonson used to use was the the volleyball in the swimming pool. You're playing water volleyball, and the ball goes by in some clever junior high boy, pushes it underneath himself, and everyone, where's the ball? Where's the ball? He act, he's doing the same. Where's the ball? Where is it? It's in contact with him. All the time. And he's suppressing it. He's suppressing the truth. And what happens if he loses his balance a little bit? What happens to the ball? It pops up right in front of him. Oh, there it is. God says that's the way everybody is with the truth that I have revealed. They spend a lot of time suppressing the truth. But they're always in contact with the truth. They can't get away from it. It's always there. Because God made it evident. And then he goes on, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, Genesis 1.1, For since the creation of the world, His, God's, invisible attributes are clearly seen. I think I've told you the story about the uh, architect that built the Alder's house and the big timber frame was out there in the field and and he and I were talking, he professing atheist, uh, as we were looking at all the spans of the creek and the trees and the creation. He says, I see no evidence of a God. And I, with that timber frame sitting right there in the middle of that picture, said, I see no evidence of an architect. (laughs) And he smiled a bit, and I said, there is infinitely more evidence of a creator than there is of an architect. Your little sticks are nothing compared to the world of living things that is the backdrop to that little structure. There's no one blinder than he who won't see. For since the creation of the world, in other words, all of history, all of human history, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made. Even, in case Paul doesn't want anybody to miss this point, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without an excuse. Literally, an apologetic, a defense. They have no defense. The evidence is so overwhelming. It is everywhere, all the time. The problem is an ethical problem. It's a heart problem. It's not an evidence problem. 
because, and now he's going to give us further explanation. Remember, we're pulling the curtain back here. What's going on behind the scenes? Because although they knew God, there it is again, they did not glorify him as God. Nor were they thankful. See the heart problem? But became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's a sin problem. Don't like God. Don't like all this stuff. I'm not thankful for all this stuff. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Psalms say, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's the definition of a fool. Of foolishness. Here's all the evidence. Overwhelming evidence. It's in you. It's all around you. You're swimming in it. You're in constant contact with it. God has made it known, clearly known, the visible things and the invisible things, and you have no excuse, and yet you insist. You continue to insist on suppressing the truth and being foolish. All the time professing to be wise. How do they do it? Verse 23. And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So let's just worship the creatures. Let's worship creation itself. We're scientists. We'll just study the creation. We'll come up with another explanation for all of this. We don't like that explanation. We want a different explanation. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Here you've been given all this truth, all this evidence. It's overwhelming all the time, everywhere. And what are you going to do with it? I'd like to trade it in for a lie. I don't like that explanation. And worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He goes on to talk about the moral degeneracy that sets in into the culture as a result. Look around in our culture and you can see the result. Once God is abandoned, once he is set aside, once that truth is suppressed, there is no God, there is no accountability. This is it. And I'd like to ask you, if this is it, and that's really the argument of the whole book of Ecclesiastes, if all we have is life under the sun, if this is it, then why wouldn't you just do whatever you want to do? Whenever you want to do it. And so when we look around us and we see people doing whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do it, why are we surprised? We've already been told what's going on. How does the story end? If we follow Romans 1 and Romans 2, we see that it ends in death. It ends in judgment. It ends in destruction. Remember, it started out saying that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. 
God is not happy with this. He is not happy that his creatures don't bow before him and worship him and are thankful to him for all that he's done. And in effect, he says, okay, you want a different God? You want a different explanation for how you got here and why you're here? Go for it. Let's see how that works out. And then as it plays out, it plays out in death and misery and sadness and sorrow. Now, it's not the end of the story, but the Romans is a wonderfully great book because he goes on to give us the prescription for the solution, which is a Savior. The gospel, the good news, the rescue, the recovery. But I want to come back to this issue that we've been discussing over origins and beginnings and why it's so important that we take this seriously. Are we really surprised at the state of a culture where every, essentially every, every school and every university is teaching that Romans 1 and Genesis 1 and Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1 and John 1 are lies? And we haven't just been doing that for a week or two. We've been doing it for quite some time, for 100 years at least. It went on this week, right here in this town, all the time. It, it underlies every discipline at the university, every subject. The arts, the sciences, the humanities. That's the fundamental view of how we got here. I want to read a couple of quotes. Greg Bonson said, Darwin offered them hope. Them being really the folks in Romans 1. Those who wanted to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. He offered them the scientific answer that would at last reduce biological processes to mere mechanisms. Machines in the final analysis are not subject to judgment. For they are not bound by any ethical law greater than survival. Even the violation of this command, the law of survival, at most leads to the void of non-existence. That's the worst thing that can happen to you, is you can die and cease to exist. That's it. That's as bad as it gets. And on a really bad day, that's not too bad of an alternative, perhaps. Even the violation of this command, the law of survival at most leads to the void of non-existence, not the eternal reality of personal judgment by a personal God. You see the motivation of why Darwin and his views are so readily accepted? The Darwinian revolution was the capstone of a century-long quest. The holy grail of evolutionary speculation had at last been found by a particular, excuse me, a peculiar hypochondriac who once devoted eight consecutive years of his intellectual life to the exhaustive study of barnacles. Darwin himself was well aware of the impact of his ideas 
of the revolution of what he was asserting. In fact, he waited many, many years before he published his book. He was a little worried about what his wife was going to say, maybe a lot worried, and he was certainly worried about some of his uh, supporters and how this was going to impact things. And, but here's what he said. In one of his early notebooks, he records the prophetic statement that his theory of evolution would affect the whole of metaphysics. Now, metaphysics, we might say spiritual, the spiritual world, or the, the, anything that's not physical, philosophy, ideas. The whole world of ideas was going to be affected by what he was thinking about publishing. About Darwin's The Origin of Species, which was published in 1859, Josiah Royce commented, with the one exception of Newton's book, Principia, no single book of empirical science has ever been more important to philosophy than this work of Darwin. Not biology, philosophy. Because he was challenging the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of origins. Will Durant, famous unbelieving historian, he and his wife wrote a big, long world history series, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, is another one you may be familiar with. He observed this about Darwin. He said, it may well be that for posterity his name will stand as a turning point in the intellectual development of our Western civilization, if he was right, that's a great way to put it, if he was right, men will have to date from 1859, the beginning of modern thought. Another Man, T.A. Gouge uh, said, even if he had never written The Origin of Species, 1859, and The Descent of Man, which is another of Darwin's books, uh, 1871, he would still be regarded as one of the great biologists of the 19th century. Of course, it was these two books which made him the initiator of a revolution in thought more far-reaching than that ushered in by Copernicus, who, by the way, that's, uh, when we use the word revolution, it was a revolution that comes from Copernicus, who discovered the rotation of the planets around the sun and so forth. But uh, so Copernicus was revolutionary, and that word then been applied politically and so forth since then. Darwin established, continuing this quote, beyond reasonable doubt, now, of course, that's based upon some very big presuppositions. Beyond reasonable doubt that all living things, including man, have developed from a few extremely simple forms. That's false, too. Perhaps one form by a gradual process of descent with modification. Stacy's been teaching us about that. Furthermore, he formulated a theory, natural selection, supporting it with a large body of evidence to account for the process. Darwin was very far indeed, of course, from demonstrating his theory beyond a reasonable doubt. A second explanation is offered by the Apostle Paul, and we just read it in Romans chapter 1. 
Dr. Van Til writes, The Bible requires men to believe that God exists apart from and above the world, and that he, by his plan, controls whatever takes place in the world. Everything in the created universe, therefore, displays the fact that it is controlled by God. Hear that? Everything in the universe displays the fact that it is, it is controlled by God, that it is what it is, by virtue of the place it occupies in the plan of God. The objective evidence for the existence of God and of the comprehensive governance of the world by God is therefore so plain that he who runs may read. In other words, even if you're trying to get away from it, it's everywhere. Continuing, men cannot get away from this evidence. They see it around, around about them, they see it within them, their own constitution so clearly evinces the facts of God's creation of them and control over them that there is no man who can possibly escape observing it. If he is self-conscious at all, he is also God-conscious. No matter how men may try, they cannot hide from themselves the fact of their own createdness. Whether men engage in inductive study with respect to the facts of nature about them, or engage in analysis of their own self-consciousness, they are always face-to-face with God, their Maker. Calvin stresses these matters greatly on the basis of Paul's teaching in Romans. So in other words, the curtain's been pulled back. God's going to tell you what's really going on in your atheist friend's heart. Yeah, I know what he says. But let me tell you what's really going on. That's a cover. That's the Wizard of Oz. That's the, you know, let's pull the curtain back on the little man behind the curtain. Pulling the levers and flashing the lights and acting very big and very important. And then Van Til very rightly observes that this is an all-or-nothing proposition, something I've been emphasizing over and over for us. It's true for everyone. The total picture we obtain from both modern science and modern philosophy, Van Til says, is a complete rejection of the biblical notion of creation. It matters not whether this rejection comes in the form of an outright negation in the form of agnosticism, or in the form of substituting another meaning for the word creation. As Orthodox Christians, we have to face the fact that we are at this point, as along the whole line of thought, out of accord with modern thought. The assumption of brute fact is itself the most basic denial of the creation doctrine. I'll come back to that in a moment. And the assumption that man can of himself interpret brute facts is itself the denial of God as creator. We need, therefore, to challenge the very idea of brute fact. We need to challenge man's ability to interpret any fact unless that fact be created by God and unless man himself is created by God. Now, what does he mean by brute fact? Do the facts speak for themselves? Can we take any fact 
and lay it on the table, and you look at it, and I look at it, and we all look at it, and reach the same conclusion about that fact. Or are all facts interpreted? And so we have this issue of the problem. How many facts are there, by the way? And how many of them do you actually know? And how, do you, how many of them do you know for certain? That number, by the way, would be zero. And so you start with zero facts, zero knowledge of the facts. Now, there are lots of facts, and I would argue in one sense the facts do speak for themselves. The heavens do declare the glory of God. The creation does reveal his invisible nature. It's speaking loud and clear. But there's another problem. It's not a lack of facts. It's not a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of truth. The problem is in us. Back in, you know, in the day, you're driving down the road, you have the radio on, and uh, it's a really bad signal, and you've tried for a few days fiddling with the dials, and it's still nothing but static, occasional note here or there, and you call up the radio station, and you're unhappy because they're sending out a bad signal. And they say, well, we haven't had complaints from anybody else. Maybe the problem is what? Your receiver. Your receiver's broken. Signal's great. Signal's clear. Everybody who doesn't have a broken receiver is hearing everything perfectly clear. The problem is you. This needs to get fixed. That's what the gospel does. You say, so we've got the creation, and it's revealing God, but I'm broken, and the signal's not coming in very clear. And God says, well, I have a corrective, if I can change my metaphors here. It's like looking through a telescope without the eyepiece, and you see, you see something out there, but you're not, it's not crystal clear. And God says, I have an eyepiece. I'm going to give you my word, special revelation. If you'll just pop that into the other end and work in conjunction with uh, what you're seeing in the world, uh, it'll all start to make sense. In fact, this is the instruction manual. This is the owner's manual. So imagine you came out in the woods, some kind of a Steven Spielberg movie here, and there's a huge machine with thousands of flashing lights and sounds and smoke, and uh, it's out in the middle of this field, and you, what in the world is this? I don't know what it does, I don't know where it came from, I don't know how it works. And you start looking around, you and some of your friends, and after you look for a while, somebody picks up a book and says, Hey, look, here's a picture of it on the front. It says, Owner's Manual. And you say, I, I don't want that. I'm not wasting my time with that. Sounds like a father on Christmas Eve putting together something, right? We, we don't want to fool with the instructions. I can do this. Um, and so that's what man does. We don't want God telling us anything. We want to figure this out all by ourselves, which reminds me of a Reader's Digest article I read several years ago on archaeology. And uh, in it, uh, they were talking about how ceramics would be something that lasted for thousands of years when metal things had rusted and wood had rotted. Some future archaeologist was going to dig up our civilization, and what they were going to find was all the porcelain 
uh, items. And so there was a picture, a cartoon, of an archaeologist with a toilet seat around his neck with a lid up behind his head. And he said, and the archaeologist said, they used to use this as a as a headgear in one of their worship services. <laughs> so when we, when we have no basis uh, for interpretation, we find things, and now it, imagine it's worse than this. Uh, and when it comes to creation, if man is suppressing the truth about God that's revealed in himself and all around him, the, the evidence is so overwhelming. And he says, okay, I want to explain this, but the one thing that is excluded are supernatural explanations. Any other answer is acceptable but that one. That's the one that may not come to the table. The owner's manual is not permitted. Now, go for it. Let's go figure this out. And essentially, that's what Darwin did. Darwin came up with an alternative owner's manual and said, okay, let's see if we can find some way to explain this. Um, one other illustration of this. Um, you go out and you find uh, an apple on the ground under, it's in an apple orchard, and there it is on the ground. It's right after a storm. What's the explanation for how the apple got on the ground? What's the simplest explanation? Huh? Storm came along, wind, knocked it down on the ground. Now, are you certain that's the way it got there? But that's a possible explanation. And you don't see anything. But you go over and you pick it up and examine it and notice there's a light fading out of it. What happened to your theory? What do you, gotta, what do you have to now do with your theory? Revise it. Could it have fallen out of the tree after the storm? Yeah, and perhaps somebody then walked by, like you're walking by, and took a bite out of it and set it back down. Or perhaps the day before, a little boy climbed up in the tree and got an apple, took a bite, and dropped it and left it on the ground. I mean, all, all of a sudden, you know, you've got to account for all the facts. But if, as long as you're doing that, now does that make it true, though? The fact that you came up with a, let, let's say we came up with five alternative explanations of how the apple could have gotten there, all of which could be true. Could we go from uh, a simpler life form to a more complex form? Could evolution provide some, we, we see changes, what we call microevolution, right? We see chihuahuas and great danes. And we, well, they're both dogs, and somehow, and I tell you, you know what, you just, you, you know, go to Walmart and look around and say, you know, I'm part of this. Uh, I'm one of the people of Walmart, too. Okay? And how did that happen? Go to a family reunion sometimes. That'll, that'll freak you out. Right? These are my people. And don't try to figure out exactly where you are in the tree. Uh, just hope that it branches. Um, so, in other words, evolution offers some kind of plausible explanation for some of what we see. 
but I would suggest it doesn't come close to offering a plausible explanation for all of what we see and what we don't see, the visible and the invisible. And there's plenty of visible things, as Romans 1 tells us, to be seen that are real. So, the doctrine of creation is critical to who we are, why we're here, where we're headed. It matters what you believe. It matters what your children believe. It matters what they're taught. And so don't take it lightly. It's, it's, it's a big deal. In fact, everything is riding on this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that reveals to us that which we cannot know, would not know, could never know in ourselves. Help us to be totally committed to your word. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. And help us to build our lives, our families, our futures on this truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.